Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christy Vanderwesthuizen, an associate professor at the Center for the Advancement of Nonracialism and Democracy at Nelson Mandela University, Dr. Shona Hunter, a reader at the Carnegie School of Education attached to the Center for Race, Education, and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University, and rejoined by Dr. Ashley Mateus. And they're here with us today to talk about their new book, Rutledge Handbook of Critical Studies in Whiteness. Christy, Shona, and Ashley, thank you all so much for being here. Yeah, glad to be with you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so for many of our listeners, they may not be familiar with what exactly is critical studies in whiteness. So I'd like to start off the podcast. If you could tell us, tell our audience a little bit about the book, why you took up this topic, what is critical whiteness studies and what kind of approaches are there, is the book really drawing on? Um, okay, then. So I'll kick off here, I suppose. So Christy and I see the handbook as quite a unique intervention into this kind of interdisciplinary field of critical whiteness studies. Um, So it's been going in kind of lots of iterations, really, since the kind of early 80s, I suppose, people kind of um, position the first wave. So sometimes people talk about this in terms of waves. And I suppose, in essence, it's trying to understand whiteness as um, a manifestation of power. I suppose that would be from um, from the perspective, certainly, of the handbook. But, um, but it started off in its first iterations as this kind of the first wave, a historical materialist kind of analysis of labor relations and the construction of ethnic identities in the US. It then moved through to kind of another wave that was looking at identities Um, And then finally, we've got the later kind of waves that are looking at, um, I suppose, the discourses around kind of whiteness and how it works as a discursive or significatory kind of set of practices. Um, And then we come in at, at this sort of stage where we're really interested in looking at the relationship between whiteness and power. And so we're drawing on all of those different waves of scholarship. But in essence, it's really trying to understand how whiteness um, works, um, how it um, frames our worlds, how it frames our kind of social understandings. And by our, I suppose I'm kind of highlighting this, the globality of the approach that um, many folks in critical whiteness studies have been developing, but in particular that, that Christy and I were keen to develop in the context of the handbook, because in the context of kind of global coloniality, whiteness is that key orientation to power, I suppose. Yeah, and if I can add that, um, so for us it was important, as Shona was saying, uh, you know, given this emphasis on the global coloniality of, of whiteness, it was important for us then to bring scholars in who are differently situated because you do find in the normative sort of field of critical whiteness studies that the debate is very much dominated uh, from the global north and particularly Anglo environments. And uh, and it's, it's even interesting to me, I've noticed um, with, uh, I've been to two uh, critical whiteness studies conferences in Germany, for example, and even the Germans prefer to rather look at Anglo context than, they, than, than looking at European context. That's quite an interesting phenomenon that. So we wanted to bring in <clears throat> different, you know, so scholars that are not necessarily even associated with critical whiteness studies. And that's why we, we also, we're highlighting that with the, with the title of the book, Making it Critical Studies in Whiteness. 
because we were trying to open up the field, bring in different voices, uh, scholars situated in the global south specifically. We've got a number of scholars from, from Africa, from South Africa, from Zimbabwe. We've got a number of, of scholars um, writing from India and reflecting on, uh, on whiteness in, in the global north. We've got, um, and then also, uh, you know, as I said, uh, black scholars, scholars of color, and then also uh, bringing in Japan, for example, um, Scandinavia, uh, and, and so forth, to, to really just widen the, the lens and, uh, and to challenge some of the received wisdoms that you've got in critical whiteness um, studies. And, um, yeah, so, so I, I think that, that it, uh, we've got about 30 authors that contributed. So, so it's really like throwing, throwing the net wide, theoretically, conceptually, but also in terms of, 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 um, of the vantage points and the locations from where scholars are situated. Mm, would it be okay for me to just kind of riff off that a little bit? Um, because I think one of the things that's really important to recognise is this anti-essentialist position, that um, a really a radically anti-essentialist position that we're developing throughout the handbook. And so for us, that, that means that we're really unpacking the way in which whiteness doesn't exist in an object as, as an object in and of itself. It's not the property of people, but it gets attached to lived bodies. And so um, the kind of sorts of theoretical interventions which work throughout the book really um, are trying to push the onto-epistemic dimension of whiteness and really um, very much link to um, strands in decolonial kind of theorising. And so I think this, the globality, as well as the global kind of positionings um, and the extensions of the temporal and the geographical um, or the temporal and the spatial dimensions of whiteness um, as an orientation to power, as a practice of power, it's also important to kind of think about how that relates to how whiteness actually gets produced as a material aspect of the world. And so, again, thinking about Ashley's chapter, Ashley can talk about it, I'm sure, in great detail herself. <laughs> but, um, but, but this is one of the things that certainly, for me, connects me to, to kind of Ashley's chapter because of the relationships of, of that work to my own work in relation to the construction of the British welfare state. But I'll, I'll kind of leave that for a minute and give Ashley <laughs> something but can I just um, finish up with how I got into this and then and then we can kind of move through so I think that is quite important actually for me is that one of the things that so my background is policy studies so I'm a kind of very bizarre policy studies scholar I think for anybody who sits within any of those related fields but um but so for me, um, this issue of whiteness is actually central to um, policy scholarship because of the interest in that sort of scholarship about understanding power and power formations, whether they be kind of the material practices of institutions, the construction of nations, all of this sort of stuff. And so it really is a way of, um, for me, understanding the, cult the unspoken cultural dynamics of um, the politics of, of producing nations. Um, and so one of the kind of the way that I got into this work is kind of because of that interest. And then I suppose the development of 
that analysis for me was was um was kind of executed i suppose and the conversations and the broader dimensions of that were developed for me through through the bringing together of the white spaces research network which i started in 2019 which is still kind of going now so that's like 12 13 years later so that started off really as an intervention in policy studies bringing in disciplinary kind of um, debates from all sorts of other contexts i think it was I think we've got 17 disciplines and 23 countries, or maybe the other way around. I can't remember which. <laughs> 23 countries, 17 disciplines. Um, so really to kind of have conversations and um, innovate knowledge around how institutional spaces work. Um, yeah, so that was really important for me. And I think that is something that we, um, that I would hope um, is kind of taken out of the handbook in the future also. Um, yeah. No, that's incredibly exciting. And as someone who works on this, and I'm really struck by the global element of this project that I'm really excited to get my hands on it and see all of the different approaches that are in the book. So just to shift for our audience that's really interested in sort of the rise of the radical right in our current moment, how do you all see your work on whiteness intersecting with the radical right both historically and in our contemporary period of resurgence? So for me, uh, I suppose it's, I don't know whether this is going to sound ridiculous, but a left field intervention on the right. <laughs> in that, um, I suppose for me, the I'm interested in establishing and understanding the continuities between what we see as mainstream state making practices and um, radical right politics, I suppose, although I wouldn't see that as necessarily my area. Um, my area is around this mainstream state building, what we see as liberal um, state formations. And so my work um, over the years, my kind of personal work, as well as the work of the network, um, but has really been about understanding the continuities between what we see as liberal um, state formations. Often we imagine them to be quite benevolent state formations, particularly those like in the British example, uh, I'll come on to the downside, but in the British example, have a have a very well constituted welfare state. So, but of course, I'm interested or not, of course, but, for, but from my point of view, it, it's an obvious relationship between welfare state building and coloniality. And so for me, really, um, nation st- the nation state building, which was part of the state formation of the British liberal kind of welfare state, is actually constitutive of a white nation national formation. And so um, we can see other kind of examples, which of course are related to the British context. Um, Gassan Hajj talks about the Australian state in similar kind of terms, actually. And of course, um, the Australian um, kind of state formation context was influenced by uh, British coloniality, you know. So, so um, for me, it's a mainstream manifestation of radical right politics that um, intersect around eugenics, around cis-heteropatriarchal family orders, and how those are actually um, produced and constituted through um, welfare state practices and actually how those state practices are sent are, are kind of the central raison d'etre of the state that um, that is then engaging itself in these extractive processes in other parts of the world in order to bolster 
the material um, aspects of the state that are needed for that sort, for the protection of whiteness. So it's a form of white protectionism, liberal state um, formations, really, um, that are executed via coloniality. So that's how I would see that. But I know that's very different than, you know, um, the ways in which we understand the specifics of the radical right, you know. So, um, yeah, so that's that's me, I think. <laughs> yeah. So and, and so it's interesting, the contrast with South Africa, and that's why we've actually found a very productive Shannon I to uh, you know be engaging with one another from very different contexts in that in that sense because if you look at uh, at South Africa you you have a situation where you know historically uh, you see the rise of Afrikaner nationalism then in the early twentieth century as a as a particular form of white supremacism and in my own work I've I've written a, a monograph uh, that came out in two thousand and seven called White Power and the Rise and Fall of the National Party which I Basically, in that book, I, I use the opportunity to trace this history um, back uh, to to the actually late nineteenth century. But it's, uh, really, you see this rise of African nationalism in early twentieth century, really gaining pace. And 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 in that sense, what what you have is a quite a quite an explicit um, white project to gain um, the upper hand um, in, in, in South Africa. So very different to the liberal experience, I would say, um, in, in, uh, in Britain. And, of course, what's interesting then, for me, it's, it's very useful to, to, to look at whiteness, um, and it's just not, not only useful but also necessary to look at whiteness in the plural. So to, to understand Afrikaner nationalism as a reaction to British imperialism, which, which I understand as, as English nationalism, with large, really. So we have um, South Africa or, or the territory that's now known as South Africa being colonized by, by Britain. We have the South African War between 1899 and 1902. Afrikaner nationalism ri- rising as a reaction to, to um, British imperialism. And, 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 and you know, literally uh, you have this white supremacist embarking on a project to try and wrest state control through um, uh, gaining access to the privileges uh, and protections of, of whiteness, um, but, but um, interestingly trying to do it uh, through quite a, sort of a paradoxical hanging or clinging on to a particular form of, of ethnicity. So that's why it's quite useful to bring in ethnicity. And I, you know, I love Stuart Wall's work and how he understands Englishness of course, as a as a form of, of ethnicity, and and you know how through British imperialism, this was uh, you have this kind of projection of of um, of Englishness across the globe. But of course, the English don't understand themselves as as ethnic; they see everybody else as ethnic. So 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 it's this ethnicity that seeks to place other ethnicities, and in this interplay of ethnicities and the competitive situation that rises uh, in South Africa, you have these uh, multiple whitenesses basically vying. For power, and and um, what we one of the things that we do in the book is that we we actually challenge in our chapter this con- conceptual mindset of critical whiteness studies, which is the what we call the um, um, uh, invisibility, ignorance, innocence triad. So this idea that uh, whiteness is is always invisible, it projects itself as innocent, uh, as 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 ignorant. And, and on the basis of that, therefore, as, as innocent. And if you look at uh, South African whiteness, Afrikaner whiteness, of course, 
you see that there were uh, long periods when this is definitely not an invisibilized whiteness. In fact, this whiteness was very much declaring itself. It was very much declaring um, people uh, racialized as white as superior in, in very explicit ways because you've got board signboards telling people you can enter here but you can't enter there. You can sit here but you can't sit there. And it's not only saying so-called non-Europeans as the, the first term that was used or natives um, later on, um, the, the terms changed to to um, to uh, blacks, to, to non-whites, and so forth. But you also have whites only. Europe, at, at first, Europeans only, then whites only, and so forth. So it's a, it's a very um, noticeable. Uh, it, you can't miss it. It's, a, it's quite an explicit whiteness, and so therefore, we 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 are actually argue that the invisibility proposition isn't true. Is, isn't always true. It's sometimes true, but not always true. And and, and perhaps in, in your your kind of British um, context, um, uh, mostly true. But but in, if you look at, at other locales, then then suddenly. So in terms of of location, in terms of of uh, over time, whiteness actually shifts. It adapts itself all the time, and it becomes actually sometimes hyper visibilized. Um, and that's it's a very interesting interplay then with blackness, which is sometimes invisibilized and other times hypervisibilized. So there, there are all these interactions um, that are happening, and uh, and for me it was very useful to to try and make sense of that. And then what you see is what's uh, you know as Afrikaners um, reach a, a predominantly middle class status in the 1960s, you actually see more and more how the Afrikaner nationalist establishment starts to shift towards wanting to almost disappear into this normalized whiteness of, of, of you know, Anglo-whiteness. So this globalized Anglo-whiteness wanting to disappear into that. So you see a kind of a reformism starting. And that's actually the shift of the Afrikaner establishment to a more liberal position, which is that position that seeks to invisibilize itself, actually, to move away from that that uh, explicit um uh, a kind of, of of claiming of of white supremacy to to the more invisibilized, normalized forms, and then ultimately um, um, uh, uh, now again shifting to a more to this. So you see the radical right taking shape here in South Africa again in ways, and now and now shifting again now to a more explicit form of whiteness. So it's very it's very interesting to, to see over time. That's why it helps a lot to historicize but also to bring in that spatial dimension. Can I just um, just very briefly say in relation to that, because I really like the way Christy's kind of described it all, and it is, I think, a strength of the analysis. And for me, it's the issue of the co-constitutive nature of all of these things, which again comes out in Ashley's chapter for me because – because you can't have, I mean, it sounds ridiculous in a way, you can't have the right without the left or that, you know, you can't have um, the best forms, the good forms of whiteness, which of course is how the British state constructs itself, very ridiculously for many of us, um, but um, without these other spoiled forms of whiteness. And so it really is that co-constitutive, and I would say a multiply constitutive nature of all of these things so this triadic kind of relation that Christy's talking about there is is really important in relation to that, I think. No, absolutely. And I, 
it's really, I think it's really important for our listeners who most of the time what we do is, you know, it's a, an episode that focuses on one particular aspect of the radical right in a specific context, whether it's a small contemporary moment or historical past or a particular phenomenon. So it's really helpful to put all of this in a global context and really get a sense of something like invisibility, right? That it doesn't look the same in every place and that sometimes that holds up and sometimes it doesn't. And even in specific locales, that relationship can really evolve. And when whiteness chooses to be invisible and when it doesn't is really important. So just to focus a little bit in on perhaps the the nuts and bolts of the book. Part two of the book, Conspiracies, Ideologies Reinforcing Whiteness, perhaps most directly addresses radical right movements. What are some of the areas that these chapters cover and what other sections or chapters of the book, Shona and Christy, do you think might have particular resonance for our audience, which is not only academics and policymakers, but just interested observers of the radical right in our current moment? So, uh, so this particular section, uh, Augusta, as you say, um, called conspiracies, ideologies reinforcing whiteness, is trying to make sense of those ideologies that basically conspire to uh, to reproduce whiteness, to strengthen whiteness, to at times hide whiteness, to to act as vehicles for whiteness, and so forth and so on, to normalize whiteness. So, so we look at at a number of of um, Ideologies, nationalism, of course, anti-feminism, uh, neo-fascism, of course, in, in Ashley's chapter, uh, post-feminism, liberalism, socialism, Zionism. So, um, nationalism, of course, would be a, quite a typical vehicle for for whiteness. And and I think uh, when you're thinking of the radical right, of course, we we frequent, frequently think of these white supremacist forms of of nationalism that that are mobilized um, by people in, in the in the radical right. And um, so what we're trying to do is to, to, to understand, um, you know, how these, these um, when it comes to nationalism, you know, what's also what is the point when the nationalism actually turns into a neo-fascism? You know, what, what's the point? Because it's actually, it's quite interesting when you study populism and, and you get to these different versions of populism and so forth. When, when is that moment when, when populism or a populist nationalism Actually, spills over into a form of, of fascism or, or neo-fascism, and um, and and that's yeah. So that's that's those are the kinds of uh, questions that we try to to tackle. We have uh, a very interesting uh, chapter from uh, Sitara Tubani, for example, where she's looking at Trumpist white nationalism, and then she's looking at at Hindu people in the diaspora, and how they actually resonate and and identify. With Trumpist um, white nationalism, and you you actually have a very um, specific moments of of collaboration, political collaborations, actually between your 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 Trumpists in the states and and Hindus in in the in the diaspora. So you see this kind of meeting of 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 minds between Hindu Hindu nationalists and American uh, white nationalists, which uh, you know, and it's a it's a fascinating chapter, and it shows you also how whiteness. Can be mobilized by people who are uh, not racialized as white, but who are actually racialized as other to whiteness. Um, then, of course, I'll, I'll leave Ashley to to say um, uh, a lot of words about her chapter because it's um, it is it's a it's a it's a very it's a fascinating chapter in terms of showing us um, you know how mutable uh, uh, also fascist whiteness is. We think of fascist whiteness as quite a crude. 
in your face kind of um, model that but we find I mean I think politically it is it's uh, it's quite an astute um, form uh, before we get there then so we've got uh, Kendra Marston who talks about the British royal family and we know uh, you know if you just look at popular media you know the royalists and all of that and she's looking at how Meghan Markle has become this object of hatred and it's particularly actually because the British royal family is projected as the sign of whiteness um, uh, the, the sign of, of white Britishness and that Britishness is impossible if not white and how um, and, and, and also actually looking at social media specifically and how these discourses are, are projected through through social media to communicate this this um, essentialist understanding of, of British Britishness as necessarily white uh, so and that's that's a wonderful um, Chapter after saying, and we also have the provocations section. The provocations section is when we we actually get into some of the debates and dilemmas of critical whiteness studies, and uh, we also we challenge uh, normative critical whiteness studies. A wonderful chapter by Amanpreet Oluwalia, and we also um, look at um, at uh, we, we find sort of different vantage points. Uh, for example, uh, we've got an African philosopher. Bernard Matulino, originally from Zimbabwe, today in South Africa, you know, asking questions like, is it possible to suspend whiteness, you know, from an epistemological uh, point of view, when you when you are uh, a philosopher? And he, he points to these very um, fascinating contradictions in in the development of, of African philosophy, for example. But um, Philip W. Gray has a chapter on the alt right, and and this also links to me quite nicely with Ashley's. Chapter. Um, uh, they are uh, the alt right politics can can be very easily dismissed, but it's for me it's a very uh, interesting um, latter day development, kind of incorporating neoliberal dimensions and 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 definitely fascist dimensions and so forth. But uh, and then what Philip uh, Gray is looking at is how it it brings on board and actually appropriates. The, uh, the black feminist principle of intersectionality, in terms of of of, of creating a new kind of politics that um, that ultimately um, bolsters uh, a, a very very reactionary um, form of whiteness, and then also in that same section we've got Colleen E. Belcher and Cheryl E. Mateus, who writes about what they call an emboldened whiteness, and that actually brings us to because if you think about it, your your liberal form of whiteness is this form. That that seeks to to disappear itself. It does this disappearing trick, and it's and um, and it's difficult to pin down. Um, what you now seeing because of very, I, I think we should we should give credit to the incredible courage that there's been in anti-racist and anti-colonial movements over the past four hundred years that have actually brought whiteness on the onto the back foot. People that say, you know, you, I do a lot of um, public engagements and media engagements, and people always say. Oh, but things are exactly the same. No, things are not exactly the same. You actually have, at this point in time, you're actually seeing a um, a whiteness that is very much on, on the back foot, that's, that's adopting a, a defensive posture. That's why it's actually coming out fighting. That's why it's becoming more explicit. That's why it's becoming visibilized in these white supremacist forms, in the, in, in, in the alt-right form, and so on. And, and Boucher and, and Matthias actually talks about it as this emboldened whiteness, and they they analyze it as an evolutionary terror because in a sense what we're now seeing is a is a reversion to those is a is a reverse what we're now seeing is a reversion 
to to that kind of white supremacism that you saw uh, with the you know in, in the late nineteenth century in the states uh, I would say uh, the kind of backlash that you that you saw there if you think of of the lynching movement and so on um, if you if you look at that violence in the United States against um, against African Americans and 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 other um, stigmatized groupings. And and also, uh, if I'm looking at the South African context, of course, um, you're looking at you know basically 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and then of course you know the fascism of of the of the 30s and 40s and so on, further further emboldening this um, this whiteness, and that's why they they analyze it as a uh, this Nabaltra and Matthias as a as an evolutionary terror because it's you can you can um, uh, analyze it over time and you historicize it and you can actually see how it morphs and adapts itself to historical conditions to 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 try and reassert itself yeah and i mean throughout the rest of the book i think just you know there's so many different chapters that speak to different aspects of this continuity you know so um so i think the other sections also and the other kind of authors are still worth a look, I would say. <laughs> and there are more or less explicit kind of engagements, you know, throughout. Absolutely. And then that's one of the great things about an edited volume is it allows you to really come in from so many different perspectives and you can really focus on the parts that are really relevant for your work. If you're an academic, if you're just an interested reader, you can hone in on these different elements or you can do what I plan to do, which is get it and just sit with it and read it cover to cover. So I wanted to um, switch over to Ashley and hear a little bit about her chapter in the book, which we've mentioned a few times. And it's called Hashtag Trad Culture. Reproducing Whiteness and Neo-Fascism Through Gender Discourse Online. Thanks, Augusta. And thank you so much, Shona and Christy. Um, it's such an interesting conversation. So the chapter that I wrote explores how trad culture works as a useful mediating space for normalizing and softening far-right extremists, particularly sort of neo-fascist and white supremacist ideas. Um, so I took an approach to trad culture that's a bit broader than most people in the study of the radical right who tend to focus on the kind of extreme um, influencers in the culture, really trying to understand how this liminal space, this borderland between normative and, and extreme cultures was working from a communicative framework in digital space. So I would say it's important to note that there's multiple strands of trad culture. There's a sort of red pill strand um, deriving mostly from Reddit. And for folks interested in that, Julia Ebner writes about that. There's the sort of more secular nationalist strand, which is something that I tend to focus on because that aligns with my work. Um, and that became highly publicized throughout 2020 in mainstream media, which I talk about in the chapter. And then there's um, a more religious strand, which overlaps with Hindutva cultures, broadly speaking, and non-Western culture in a different way. And Avian Leidig, who also writes about this and is a former CAR fellow, um, focuses a bit more on the non-Western aspects, just for folks interested in trad culture broadly. Um, but all the strands focus on women's role as wives and mothers. And interestingly, in this sort of moment, they frame this through an innate personal desire and a rejection of feminism. So it's a very sort of neoliberalized culture in certain ways. And I work with um, the theory of Angela McRobbie and Susan Douglas. So post-feminism and enlightened feminism to kind of talk about how that piece works a little bit. Um, but this culture is, is I, it's important that it is 
both has elements that are extremists and elements that are non-extremists because that allows it to position itself. We talk about how whiteness hides itself. It allows it to position itself as non-extremist, broadly speaking, which enables normalization. Ashley, that's really exciting, especially as someone who I'm not incredibly familiar with, with trad culture. I am, it's not something that I've looked a great deal into. So I wanted to ask a little bit about, can you give us a sense of how ideas of tradition work in this sort of particular space to circulate, whether it's propaganda or narratives between conservative and radical or far-right digital spaces and cultures online? Definitely. So as I was kind of looking at the online media, right, I study digital cultures and how those media circulate. I started to ask, so whose tradition is this referring to? Because the imagery and the media are really, really white-centric, and the majority of the voices and women sharing this are white. So it's clear that the aspirations of trad culture present a very specific form of white gendered nostalgia. You'll see imagery of uh, the 1950s housewife is very popular, or in some cases, the pioneer woman. Um, in particular, that pioneer image is, is popular in Australia, right? So you'll see ethnocentric clothing in some cases in the in Eastern European context, right? So it's a very specific sort of white gendered nostalgic vision that is aimed at how white women desire to be in this moment, it's highly anti-feminist, right? So they sort of see feminism as having failed them or at a minimum being complete. And now they can return to this sort of innate desire to mother and be wives, typically stay-at-home mothers. But this idea, um, I've argued, represents a white gendered epistemology or specifically a white feminine epistemology, a way of knowing the world through whiteness and femininity that is very specialized. And it's that epistemological piece that is implicitly embedded with whiteness and femininity that makes a productive space for more explicit racist and neo-fascist narratives to come in and be laundered through the culture, right? So you'll see very explicitly white supremacists, often identitarian is what they call themselves. It's a particular strand of contemporary white supremacism. Um, that are influencers within this culture and influencers within this sort of alternative network, and they bridge between the two cultures. So I think the most famous example, which I've written about previously, is um, Lana Lochtef and Isla Stewart, right? So Isla Stewart is wife with a purpose. She identified as a trad wife. Lana Lochtef identifies as an identitarian. Um, she's part of a large media company with her husband in this space. And they would do podcasts together all the time. And there's once you start following it, there's a larger network of these women. So certain ideas can get pushed in between the movements and normalized through trad culture into sort of normative conservative culture in ways that pull conservative culture further to the right. Ashley, that's incredibly fascinating. And this is something, this is one of the aspects of your work that I really love is there's you can actually show us what it looks like of how how do things move from sort of extreme spaces to so-called mainstream spaces. This is something that we talk a lot about in our current political moment, especially in the United States, the so-called mainstreaming effect. And what you do is really show us how this happens culturally and what this actually looks like. And you can trace that. And it's it's really, it's one of the aspects of your work that I really love. And I wanted to ask, are you seeing any 
real-world socio-political outcomes from this particular gen- digital culture, in or as to frame it another way, are there ways that politics are capitalizing on these discursive discursive shifts that the sort of online trad wife culture has been generating? So I think there's two really big ones. One that has been a bit more internationalized or globalized, and one that is a bit more specific to the U.S. culture presently, although. Um, some very kind of US centric things have been moving broadly in the digital space lately. So we'll see how that ends up. The first is, and we've talked about this before, Augusta, the kind of save the children, cue a mom stuff. So as there's this rising tide of white traditionalism, this idea of motherhood and motherhood as a mechanism for women's public political voice, right? It spills over into the broader culture. So there's women who may never have heard of trad culture, but there's this rising tide of this idea of mothers needing to be proactive. And the Save the Children campaign that happened in the summer of 2020, so it was uh, protested in the U.S. in August, and then it moved globally throughout Europe um, and and even further in September of 2020, um, really, to me, are a harbinger of um, this shift rightward in women's kind of focus on their children in politics, like as a mode of their public speech, a mode of their public participation. And it's important because that movement is also... (laughs) infiltrated by and touched by far-right extremism and other forms of extremism in ways that are concerning. The one that is a bit more U.S.-centric at the moment and works in a similar way. So again, so women may not know what trad culture is, but this sort of widening digital culture and online narrative is the anti-critical race theory movement, particularly in K-12 schools, um, where critical race theory and critical race studies are not generally taught. But it's a, it's a mobilizing factor that is a, an implicitly white mobilizing factor, um, drawing from the work of women like Elizabeth Gillespie McRae mm-hmm. and Mothers of Massive Resistance. White women have long had um, and long taken up political mobilization around protecting whiteness in this way in school environments, in educational environments, because it's a place where white women are not only, um, they're, they're empowered to do it in that setting right, through cultures of whiteness. So those are the two kind of areas that I've been looking at in terms of this culture and its impact on shifting the Overton window around children and education. Christy and Shona, I wanted to loop you back in and ask you the same question. If you could talk a little bit about the sociopolitical outcomes of the work that you do in the context that you study and also any ways that you see the migration of the particular kinds of issues with the globalizing nature of the far right. This is something we talk about a lot on the podcast that obviously we're in a particularly global moment, but far right extremism has always been global. But I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the outcomes that you're seeing in your work and the ways that this is expanding transnationally or perhaps not. Can I come in off the back of what Ashley was just talking about, actually, because there's such great examples of that in the English context which actually relate to the thrust of my work. Um, So the, you know, thinking about the way online cultures and the rightward shifts of those and the rightward shifts of gender cultures, women, the family, the centrality of that in in political life. You know, we've got the the incredible example of Mumsnet in, in the English context, which, of course, is totally not considered um the far right, or even, you know, it, it, it would never really construct itself as rightward, but it is totally um, rooted within um, the importance of white womanhood for white supremacist um, or, or for whiteness as an orientation of power and as it's hooking into the state. The, I mean, the K 
I, I always get the years wrong in the US context, but we have exactly the same thing going on in the English context at the moment, um, you know, with the kind of shifts in the curriculum. And we've actually got another chapter, after having said I wouldn't mention anybody else specifically, but Shireen, Shireen Razak actually uses the, the schoolyard um, and this example of um, the battle between Christianity and anti-Muslim kind of racism in the context of the US. I mean, she does a huge historical sweep around that, but um, but it totally hooks into what um, what Ashley was just talking about there. And I think the final thing I would say before handing over to Christy, because she's kind of the expert in the far right stuff, <laughs> definitely, um, that, that is not necessarily my bag. But I mean, my interest in care and maternalist politics and the relationship between maternalism and the establishment of the welfare state, which of course is talked about so much in the US context because of the, of the kind of unusual state formation or the, the particular state formation within that context the relationship between women, the church, charitable kind of context. But um, but the English um, maternalism and the relationship to paternalism in the English context is absolutely crucial to this, to the development of um, right wood. Well, actually, the, the right-centeredness, if I can say that, I don't know whether I can, of liberalism in the English context. I mean, this is we are essentially a conservative little C and big C um, kind of kind of national space, which of course looks into coloniality. So background again, yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and um, I, I I wrote a book called uh, um, "Sitting Pretty What of a Councilman in Post Apartheid South Africa," which basically uh, looks um, very much at what you are talking about, um, Ashley. Um, I, I like this idea of a white feminine uh, epistemology because. It is. Uh, it is. It, it's very interesting to see, you know, in a, in a very, very new democracy. You know, if we only transitioned to democracy in 1994, so you can. So we, we're a, we're a very, very a new and fledgling, I, I should add, a democracy. And you should think that um, the the kinds of, of of possibilities in terms of reimagining yourself, your own uh, subjectivity. Um, uh, would be would be endless and should be endless because it is a um, uh, there's a there's a kind of expansive political kind of terrain that's been open and then so very powerful discourses are actually being mobilised to draw women back in and and um, with the demise of of Afrikaner nationalism as we as we knew it as it gave rise to apartheid as a as a white supremacist uh, state formation with the demise of that Afrikaner nationalism you've seen a kind of a fracturing and a fra fragmenting. So if you want to talk about kind of political mobilization or instrumentalization of, of these discourses, um, this, uh, in, in South Africa what you see is a, what, what, I, what I call in this book, um, well, see, uh, it's, it's a neo-Africana um, enclave nationalism. So you get a kind of a withdrawal into much smaller locales and in that way gender becomes a, a primary relation there because you're trying to, reinstate certain hierarchies that are now being disturbed by the democratic state. And in that sense, um, the whole idea with uh, the mother of the nation idea becomes very important. So here's the maternalism for you with an Afrikaans called Volksmutter. Um, so folk, like in, uh, in also in your German sense of a, of a folk. Um, so so the mother, uh, the, the Volksmutter, mother of the nation imagery that's being reactivated and uh, as and and, and uh, I describe it as kind of a woman struck wife as mother 
model. So you know, to achieve womanhood, you, know, you have to be uh, a wife, you have to be a mother. And it's, it's incredibly uh, interesting to see how, how strongly those discourses um, are flowing. And, and primarily also aimed at, at reinstating Afrikaner men who have, who have been stigmatized by apartheid, you know, as they were the public face of apartheid. So they, they have been, so mas- Afrikaner masculinity has been under massive pressure. And uh, if we want to look at these, these transnational linkages as well, so it's very interesting to see you've got on the, on the Afrikaner right, the white right, you've got again almost no women uh, publicly active. They're back at home keeping the enclave cooking and going and keeping the children racist and sexist and, and, and homophobic and so forth. And you have the men actually engaging in organizations and connect, connecting, uh, creating these transnational connections, um, even uh, making presentations to the European Union Parliament. Uh, we've had uh, uh, visits by our white right uh, organizations to to the Trumpist White House and so forth and so on. And that's where we see our, our white right Afrikaner men basically active and making those interconnections quite quite uh, in quite obvious ways. The whole idea around farm murders um, that people might have heard of being mobilized, interestingly also then by European white rights, to, to create this idea, to reinforce this idea of the white race so-called under pressure. There are these, uh, uh, there's this um, uh, onslaught on, on white people and, and using the South African example of so-called farm murders to, to justify white right politics actually in Europe and in, and in Scandinavia. So it's very interesting to see these interlinkages and, of course, social media uh, yet again being uh, absolutely vital. Christy, Shona, and Ashley, thank you all so much for being here. And for our listeners, can you provide the details of how folks can pre-order the book, if there's any events coming up and when the book is due out? And also, for many of us, can our university libraries order the book, you know, just to make sure that we're getting it in our shelves and, and that way, after we're done reading it, other people can read it too? Yeah, sure. Um, so, well, you can certainly order pre-order the book um so you can do that via the routledge website so you can go to routledge.com um i don't know whether christy's got the isbn to hand but we can pop that in the show notes you know and people can just search the title definitely get your libraries to to um to pre-order it is a big tome and like christy says it's hugely (laughs) it's a it's a it's a hefty there's a hefty price tag too so it is definitely for libraries to kind of think about to use in course material there's a great kind of wealth of that but there will also be open access content um but we just obviously need to wait until um that is published so people will be able to get hold of parts of the book open access um courtesy of kind of routledge and if you want to find out about more of that, you can just follow, you know, um, Christy and I on social media. You can follow the White Spaces, Twitter, um, and you'll kind of get all sorts of information from all of those. So, um, yeah. And events, we will be having a launch event um, in the new year. So in 2022. And, and if, you, if you, I should add now that if you, if you order it now, you get a nice chunky 20% off. I mean, I know that sounds a bit too advertorial. We love discounts. <laughs> we all love discounts. <laughs> and everyone knows Ashley's Twitter. She's been on the, the pod a few times. But uh, Christy and Shona, could you give your social media just for our listeners so they can follow you and 
get all of your insights all of the time. And so I'm, um, my personal Twitter's at Shona Hunter. So S-H-O-N-A-H-U-N-T-E-R. And then the uh, White Spaces Twitter is at Spaces White. And again, similar to Christy, I've got a personal kind of, well, we've got a White Spaces website that's got just piles of information and kind of videos and stuff like that. So um, anybody who's interested can go there. Right. I'm, I'm on uh, at Christy VD West on, on Twitter. So that's C-H-R-I-S-T-R-V-D-W-E-S-T. And, and from there you can uh, get uh, the link to my Facebook uh, as well and, and uh, join me there. Fantastic. Thank you three so much for joining me. Very good to be with you. Good to, good to meet you, Ashley. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes. Well, this has been another episode of Right Rising and we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.